0: such a wonderful morning and um, again um, when you came in there should have been a sheet of paper given to you or maybe you got one off of the back table if you didn't get one just raise your hand someone will come around and give you a copy of uh, scriptures that I want to share with you this morning let me say that uh, yeah raise there you go raise your hands high and hold them up Let me just say that when I first fell in love with Jesus, um, there was a particular part of the Bible that got my attention. I fell in love with the Sermon on the Mount, which in a few minutes I'm going to tell you it actually probably wasn't a sermon, like as what you might be expecting right now. It wasn't a sermon so much as it was a declaration. It was the beginning of a revolution. I am, with all my heart, convinced that the revolution that Jesus began, and he began it so simply, he began a revolution with a blessing, that that revolution is continuing and will continue. I believe with all my heart that we are here today, perhaps few in number, few more online, that's not so much... The concern at the moment is that those of us that are here understand that we're in the presence of God Almighty by way of his holy spirit so the holy spirit is present. I have no doubt that there is lying and deceiving spirits that have tried to say something to you at some point in the service. You n- may not be familiar with it, but more importantly there are angels cherubim and seraphim, angels, archangels. I really sense the presence of God in a very particular way this morning, and I really believe that God wants to do something very revolutionary in our hearts and our lives. And so just um, put on your seatbelt, buckle in. For the next uh, half an hour, I'd like to share with you some things that God has been laying on my heart and it comes out of the sermon on the mount. Two weeks for two weeks this Sunday and next Sunday I want to do what I'm going to call Jesus unplugged volume 1 today volume 2 next week. By unplugged I mean I want to disconnect Jesus from and this is hard for us to to wrap our minds around. I want to I want to uh, unplug Jesus from a mit, for a minute from western ideas of church I'm going to also say carefully from Paul's understand the apostle Paul's understanding of the gospel the apostle Paul did not have a different message he had a different audience Jesus spoke primarily to Jews Paul was speaking primarily to Gentiles It was the same Jesus, the same message, same gospel, two different audiences. Predominantly, we are Gentiles here today. It was great to have Hanan with us last week. And every time I'm around Hanan, he reminds me of our Jewish roots. And so, if you don't mind, I want to unplug Jesus from Western conception of church, of Christianity... And let Jesus just kind of speak for himself in his own words. And um, to be honest with you, to let the sharp edge of his message cut us so deeply that he would then have to heal us in a way that only he can know how to do. I hope that's not sounding like a threat. I hope you understand. I just want to cut through the clutter, if you will. Jesus unplugged what did Jesus actually say, what did his followers actually hear, and what must we actually do? How do we respond to him? And he just, I'm just going to use this one tiny little verse, now I'll use some other verses to to bring out, you know, like Ryan back there is adjusting the sound and It can be the same band, but depending on how you fade things in and out and set gains and tones and whatever, you can bring out a slightly different message or slightly different tone. So I want to know how it is that Jesus is able to start a revolution with one little verse such as the one I'm about to share with you. It's in Matthew 5, verse number 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want you to hear that because it's really complicated, you know. It's one of the things I love about Jesus. He spoke primarily to blue-collar average people, blue-collar workers, average, ordinary people. He didn't speak in high theological terms, even though he's familiar with a term like consecration justification atonement he's familiar with all of that his language was very simple and direct and to the point so it's so simple you might miss it I'm just going to share it one more time I want you to brace yourself he says blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God how about that for about a year I've been praying that God would expose corruption in our culture, in politics, in media, in healthcare, CDC, the church, my house, the White House, that corruption is a very ugly thing that can distort everything. And so I've been praying that God would expose corruption. The swamp is deeper than you think. Now, I've changed my prayer. That I've asked the Lord that he would not only expose corruption, but that when people have been exposed in their corruption, when they resign in disgrace, when they try to defend themselves or whatever, when they face court hearings and sentences that that the Spirit of God would fall on hearts of men and women and they would be convicted of their sin, they would become repentant, and they would join Jesus' revolution. That's my prayer. My real prayer isn't that God just gets rid of bad apples, but that God transforms us bad apples. Some of us rotten to the core, when Jesus found us. The thing I love, Annie, about the story that you shared, when Jesus spoke, you know, which which do you think will love more, the one who's been forgiven much or the one who's been forgiven little? I think the thing that we oftentimes miss in that story, it's, it's impacted me so much, is that that Jesus said both of them were completely unable to pay the debt, both of them. Whether it's much or little, it doesn't make any difference. We're all rotten to the core when Jesus found us. And um, falling in love with him begins a process of restoration. And so as much as I have shared with you from the American Revolution in July, here we are in August, and I'm going to talk about Jesus' revolution and um, it's the one that all of my all of my eggs are in that basket such a beautiful simplicity in that verse there's a blessing in that verse there's a core value in that verse there's a benefit so I want to read a couple of verses it be found on your piece of paper there in front of you Matthew 4:23, just to set up what is happening what is taking place Matthew 4, 23, before we get to the quote-unquote Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among among the people. Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. Verse 24, the news about him spread throughout all Syria. That's the northern part of Israel, what we today call Lebanon. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases, pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, Jesus' hometown, around the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, if you will, and the Decapolis, the ten cities, still trying to identify them today in the region of Galilee, from Jerusalem all the way down in the south, and Judea, the surrounding area uh, today where we would call the uh, West Bank and from beyond the Jordan. And those would be the uh, two tribes of uh, Israel that had encamped on the other side of the Jordan, which is actually uh, predominantly Gentile area, and they chose to live there and not cross the Jordan. So people were hearing about Jesus, and they were healing that he could restore people, their lives. He could heal them he could change them. And so from all the way up in the north to the central area where Jesus is from to all the way down in the south and from all the way in the west, I'm sorry, in the east um, across the Jordan River. All of that area, people were, they were all heading up to, could you imagine like all of central Pennsylvania converging on Warmleysburg? Where would we put them? We welcome you, but we don't know where we would put you. Warmleysburg is such a crazy little town. We are surrounded by a a river, railroad tracks, and then um, a bottleneck, and then a speed trap on the uh, other side. Full disclosure, I was caught, not in a speed trap, but at a stop sign I didn't stop entirely and I had a pharisaical officer who went by the letter of the law and got his ruler out I think and measured me as not completely stopping so he and I had a wonderful visit alongside the road and so it's a wonderful place to be and just don't speed or run stop signs you usually can get along if you don't do those things So if you can imagine a bunch of people from central Pennsylvania and and surrounding areas just kind of converging on one place, that's what's happening. What's the time frame? The time frame is early after, uh, it's early in Jesus' ministry and it's right after his baptism, the temptation and the testing in the wilderness. He had chosen early disciples, maybe not all 12 of them, but he had chosen uh, disciples And um, so they were with him. They were going where he was going. This is after turning the water into wine. And what Jesus did is he just went out his back door and started preaching in the synagogues and teaching the kingdom of God. And as he began to do that, then he demonstrated that the kingdom of God was present by healing the sick, casting out demons, and yes, whatever uh, Sawyer just said there. What was the occasion? It was this grand uh, early ministry time. We call it the revival, the early revival of Jesus' ministry as he was restoring people. There were crowds coming. And I'm going to just tell you something. Um, When someone has been healed of something that is life-threatening, the immediate thing is that Jesus gets a lot of attention. And, um, and, and so Jesus would often say, um, please go present yourself to the priest, but um, for my sake, don't say anything to anyone else, which is like opposite of human behavior. When you find good news, you want to tell everybody. So no one listened to Jesus when he told them, don't say anything. So when they went and said something, then all of a sudden rumors start happening. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we started a rumor here today that Jesus Christ, his spirit, uh, angels, um, archangels, and whatever were present in our service this morning, and he began a revolution. Well, he just picked up from where he left off the last time, and that the, the crowds would begin to gather to hear the fame of Jesus and to hear his message. I've been privileged to be able to stand in what is left of the remnant of the... Um, Synagogue in Capernaum where Jesus uh, read from the scroll of Isaiah. Absolutely amazing place. What was his audience? Who were his audience? Well, first of all, he took like these, um, you know, um, 10 or so, eight or 10 disciples that uh, he had chosen and they had agreed to follow him. He took them and then there was the crowds were the multitudes that came along. There were probably a few Roman soldiers. There were certainly some scribes and Pharisees, maybe a couple of Sadducees uh, in the crowd. And there were certainly people from Herod's court who wanted to know what this itinerant preacher is preaching because, you know, he's got large crowds, huge crowds beginning to follow him. That makes everybody nervous what is going on people who gathered were people who had needs, people who needed healing, people who needed Jesus to restore their family, their loved ones. And I believe that there were probably some scribes and Pharisees who wanted to know who Jesus really was and what he was really doing and what he's really teaching. John the Baptist was still around the Jordan. He was still preaching. Jesus' cousin was down there calling people to repentance. And then John the Baptist was telling people that came to him for repentance to begin to follow Jesus, he's the Messiah, go follow him. So John is in the south and he's calling people to repentance and he's pushing them towards his cousin Jesus. They were carpenters, they were stonemasons which carpenters in their day also worked with stone. There's a lot more stone than wood. And um, they worked with both. Joseph's um, skill that he transferred on and taught Jesus was not only one of working with wood, but working with stone. And it's very likely that Joseph, uh, Jesus' stepfather, actually built or was a part of building that uh, synagogue in Capernaum. It's that old. It's very likely he went there for work. But what did Jesus see? Not just a mass of people. He saw a crowd of individuals. And the way he described them is they're like sheep without a shepherd. And he saw wolves that were trying to tear them apart, rip them apart. They were political, they were religious, and they were demonic. And then there's just the stuff of life life and death issues. And all of this was just trying to scatter the shepherd, uh, the sheep of uh, Israel, the flock of Israel. So, what does Jesus do? He, he climbs a mountain. They have very few mountains. Mount Horb would be an, ex, uh, uh, an exception, but the the Sermon on the Mount was on a hillside, and um, from from the banks of the uh, Sea of Galilee. Uh, Jesus walked up the shore and up the banks and on up partway up the mountain. And I want you to catch the imagery because where did Moses go to get the law of uh, God? You know, the, 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 the revelation that was given to Moses. It was on the mountaintop. So Jesus postures himself somewhat like a Moses. He walks up the mountains. What? Not to receive a law, but to share a word he sits down what's he doing well if he were standing up he would be like in rabbi mood or in synagogue mood or like I am right now he would be addressing a crowd of people he would open Torah or he would open the, the teachings of the rabbis which would eventually become the Talmud he would be opening those things if he were standing up but Jesus instead opens his mouth and he speaks from his heart. He speaks from his heart because he carries the heart of God. He is God in flesh. So Jesus sit down, un, uh, not unlike a, um, a rabbinical teacher would sit down with his students. And he begins to open his mouth. And as he opens his mouth, he begins to teach them. He's not teaching them Torah, He's not teaching them traditions, and he's not giving them a sermon. He's actually sharing a declaration of the kingdom of God. And he begins with the core values, things that you and I may not recognize as core values. He begins to call into understanding. The core values are what we call the Beatitudes. And he says, hey, guys, I just want to tell you this. Um, blessed are those of you who are spiritually bankrupt, you're broken, you're, you're rejected, and people have uh, ostracized you, and people have criticized you. You've not been clean enough to go to church. You've not been uh, educated well enough to understand Torah. Uh, there's a whole bunch of you that some people might call deplorables. They're people who are just ordinary people without very many spiritual thoughts or revelations, without maybe even a hunger for God. And Jesus says, if you'll listen, you'll come under the blessing of God. And when you come under the blessing of God, he will literally give to you the kingdom. Now, this group of people had never heard anything like that before. All they heard all their life is what they can't have, where they can't go, what they can't do. And Jesus is saying to them, this kingdom that is so amazing is not restricted from you. In fact, I can build on people like you. And he pronounces a blessing on them. And he begins to say like if if you're mourning, you've lost a loved one, you've lost your job, you've been you've lost your freedoms, you've been in from covid, you've been restricted by government Restricted by so many different things and you feel as though you've lost your freedoms. You feel like you've lost your liberties and there's something inside the American psyche that is grieving so that whenever you do lose a loved one or you do lose a job, it's like that loss on top of loss that we already feel. By the way, for those of you who love God with all your heart and you find yourself in a dry season, you're saying, I feel like I can't hear him, I can't see him, I can't smell him, I can't touch him, I feel like he's gone quiet. I'm telling you what's happening is you're grieving. You're grieving. And grieving is a process. And Christians are not exempt from grieving. Loss is loss. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope because Jesus Christ well raised from the dead just kinda turned everything all around there's nothing more frustrating than a dead savior locked in a tomb guarded by soldiers and there's nothing more wonderful than those guards and that stone and his dead body not being held back from living again So. I'm not saying don't grieve. I'm just saying you need to understand what's happening to you. Jesus started his revolution with a blessing. He didn't start with a joke. He didn't start with a call to arms. He didn't do like a lot of politicians do, which is tell you what you want to hear. It's like, okay, if you're all a bunch of middle class people. We've got tax cuts for you. We have and, and just start going through. If, if we were uh, all in poverty, we've, we've got welfare for you. If you're wealthy, hey, we've got opportunity for you. Depending on the crowd, depends on the message. Jesus was not bringing a political message, he was speaking real truth to real hearts and to real needs. God had Moses construct a tabernacle. He had Moses to consecrate a priesthood. And then Moses commissioned a law. And when the people of God entered into covenant with God, then God began to say, now you can come and worship me. And here's how you're going to do it. Bring your sacrifices. Bring your sacrifices. Bring your sacrifices. The sacrifices don't attract God God's attracted because people love him and obey him. People entered into a covenant with God and God says, now I'll be with you hearkening all the way back to that i just want to say something that in those two thousand to twenty five hundred years that had gone from the time of moses and the people of israel to the day of jesus christ you have no idea how much corruption had uh, had had sunk into the church had sunk into the 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 priesthood had found its way into religious teaching and religious orders and um and and so now you could go down to the market you could go down to the temple and find yourself a sheep or a lamb you could buy them you could buy your spotless lamb and there was a you know a sideshow there you could you had to change your money because you couldn't the the priests would not accept uh, the filthy money they would only accept temple money and so you had to take your filthy money and convert it to temple money and then you would come and buy lambs at a ridiculous rate and there was just all kinds of money being made by the priesthood there's all kinds of corruption you and I want to believe more that um, after Jesus and his reforms and clearing the temple we want to believe that that's how the temple was and the people were before that but you have to study history and the history is that the, the the whole religious deal was corrupt fully corrupt So I don't know about you, if you have uh, this like righteous thing rising up in your backbone saying, I hate corruption with all my heart, no matter where it's found, even when I find it in my own heart, I find it in my own life, you know, there's just something inside of me saying that, that society left alone or society that decides to leave God alone will end up in corruption every time. But when Jesus Christ is held high, when he is worshiped, when he is honored and when he is obeyed, people's lives begin to change. And in the midst of that messing, mess uh, in that mess, rather Jesus begins to do something that is not unlike the early priesthood. The first thing that God had Aaron do, was to lift his hands and to pronounce a blessing on the people. The people who had constructed their tabernacle, the people who had consecrated themselves and set themselves apart and consecrated the tabernacle, the people who had chosen to follow uh, God and to obey his ways, those people, the people of Israel, all the way back in Moses' day, the first thing that God does is he has Moses tell Aaron, now that the people are in relationship with God, I want Aaron every day, every week, every uh, time that we gather together, I want Aaron to stand up and raise his hands and say, the Lord bless you. (laughs) Because that was the release of the life of God into the community it wasn't just you have to obey God or he's going to get mad and leave it's more than that it's not just you kind of stop sinning because God's holy it's more than that he's saying listen if you walk in relationship with me you don't have to be perfect because I am perfect You don't have to be holy because I am holy. You don't have to be righteous because I am righteous. But if you will walk in relationship with me, I will bless you and the life of God will flow into your families. Aaron says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Moses then is describing to Aaron, and he says, "This is what God said to me. So you will invoke my name on the sons of Israel, and I will bless them. You bless them, then I will." Hallelujah! That's good news. It's just uh, one problem is uh, corruption uh, sunk in. There were wars. There was captivities. There was the people of Israel going captive into Assyria, going captive into Babylon. Three different waves of Babylonian captivity. Persians overtook them. The Greeks overtook them. The Romans overtook them. And Israel was just a mess and in captivity for so long. But I just love this thought that Jesus began his revolution with a blessing. He began a revolution with a blessing. My time is quickly going. I'm just going to try to jump in here real quick. Why did the religious leaders despise and avoid the people that Jesus had just blessed? Well, it had something to do with the Pharisees and the scribes and these misunderstanding of cleanliness laws. Leviticus 10, uh, throughout the remainder of the book, God tells the people of Israel over and over and over again, here's what I want you to do, and here's how you're going to maintain a distinction between clean and unclean. And it's going to seem convoluted to you and to me. If we go back and read the purity laws, because of Jesus and his life and teaching and impact on the uh, on the nation of israel and subsequently on the church it's hard for us to grasp this but i want you to understand that what he is basically saying look is look when i teach you that this is clean food and this is unclean food when i teach you that this is a clean house and this is an unclean house when i teach you that this is a clean man and this is an unclean man when i teach you that this is a clean sore on your body or an unclean sore on your body, you have to understand that what God is saying is that he, he begins to tell them from the very beginning that I do not want you to do what they did in Egypt. I don't want you to worship what they worshipped in Egypt. I don't want them having I don't want you having the same kind of lifestyle that they had in, in Egypt. I don't want you to have the same kind of lifestyle that they have in Canaan. So I brought you out of Egypt to make you a free people. Now I'm gonna bring you into Canaan, but there's so much idolatry and so much corruption there. I don't want you experiencing that. I want you to experience my blessing, God's blessing on the people. That's what I want you to have. I want you to experience that. So therefore, I want you to make a distinction between clean and unclean. And all is good, because here's how it works out. It basically is this, okay, for, for a Jewish man, you need to have a kosher house, you need to have a kosher kitchen, you need to eat kosher food or clean food. And why is it that you're not allowed to go across the street to your neighbor's house? And the answer is because you don't know exactly if he keeps a kosher house or if he keeps a kosher kitchen or if he keeps a kosher uh, food. And what will he set in front of you? Will it be clean or unclean? You don't know exactly how that's going to work out. So what God did is he separated his people from the people who were left in the land by clean and unclean laws. And I'm telling you, it seems ridiculous at first until you start reading about clean and unclean sexuality. By the way, most of the teaching that we have in the scriptures about the sin of homosexuality, um, most of us want to, most people want to forget that and say, let's just put that aside. That was kind of archaic. That was Moses and, you know, he had a problem with, um, you know, that kind of thing. And but when people, uh, and, and I'm now I'm talking about believers, when believers teach that homosexuality is something that God accepts simply because God loves everybody and He accepts everybody and, and all of that, you, you, that is to misunderstand the rest of the clean laws. Um, because if you started, if we read all of them, you'll find out that that God says it's unclean for a man to have sex with his wife and his wife's mother, his mother-in-law. Are we good there? It's really unclean, and and, and you're not allowed to have sex with an animal. Are we good with that one? And, And you're not allowed to have sex with your children or your neighbor or your neighbor's wife. And so when he says, when a man lies with another man, as he would with a woman, he says it's an abomination. What he's actually doing is saying that I'm trying to create a distinction here, folks. And I know that there is a better way for uh, Christians to enjoy sexuality. It's between a husband and his wife. It's the, you can't improve on that. I'm just going to say, I'm going to testify after years of happy marriage that there, you just can't improve on that. I don't worry that Judy's going to shoot me because I brought someone else home or whatever. So the thing was, I didn't go to that man's house to eat because if I went to his house to eat there, he might have unkosher food. If I get past the unkosher food, then I'm, he might have unkosher children who practice unkosher things. So, and we talked about the sexuality or, or whatever. And so here's the thing. As we start hanging out together, Sooner or later, my children and his children are going to start hanging together with each other. And when they start hanging with each other, they're going to start to want to marry each other. And when they start to marry each other, suddenly your children or your grandchildren are worshiping their gods, serving their idols, not they worshiping your God, serving your God. Clean and unclean was just meant to keep a distinction because God loved his people. That sounds archaic at, at first, but what the scribes and the Pharisees did was make it ridiculous. When they talked about clean and unclean, they got down to they got down to descriptions such as um, this one in, math, in, in Mark seven. The Pharisees and some scribes gathered around him Jesus when he had come from Jerusalem and had seen some of the disciples were eating their bread with impure hands that is unwashed for the Pharisees all of the Jews for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they carefully wash their hands by the way this is not just being clean soap and water this is like a a ceremony a show it's running down to the ends of your elbows and all that sort of thing and it's so many times and whatever And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they cleanse themselves. And there are many other things which they have received in order to observe, such as the washing of cups and pitchers and copper pots. The Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Not the word of God. But eat their bread with impure hands. And he said to them, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy to you, Hypocrites, As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men, neglecting the commandment of God, you hold to the tradition of men. Would you please stand with me? Jesus didn't come and try to change the purity laws. What Jesus did is, well, let's just say it this way. When Jesus stood up and said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want you to understand, if there's anyone who had a pure heart there that day, it was Jesus. He had the pure heart. I don't doubt that there were others, like Jesus mentioned Nathanael, is an israelite without guile but here's the deal is that jesus would infuriate the scribes and the pharisees and the religious leaders because he didn't observe their purity laws or their sabbath laws which are things that god had not created but they had added to and in the process jesus begins to show them hey look In this deal, like in the old covenant, I had to separate you clean from unclean because you're so prone to idolatry. But in this covenant, a man with a pure heart can walk into the midst of impure people and begin to teach them, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He can begin to teach them. He can begin to minister to them. Old covenant, the leper touches you, you become unclean. New covenant, you touch the leper and he is cleansed. You know, it comes out of a pure heart. I want you to hear something so revolutionary right now as we close this service today that when Jesus began to speak to people from all over the place and all of kinds of backgrounds and all kinds of sins and challenges and issues, Jesus looks at them and he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we're going to build a revolution, and it's going to be on the hearts of men and women who had, whose hearts have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ by the washing of the water of his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he's going to begin cleansing hearts and creating pure hearts so that people with pure hearts can walk into an impure world and set it free. Father, I thank you so much that Jesus was real And he was real with people and their sin. But he was also a real savior. Jesus does more than give us hope. Jesus does more than give us a better life. Jesus leads those of us who have a a revolutionary heart a revolutionary spirit a desire to see the world better when we leave than when we came for those who have a revolutionary heart jesus has a message that will cut right into the depth of uh, depth of us and we see our impurity we see our sin. We see in the light of Jesus and his truly pure heart how far we are from him. And we lift our hands and we cry out, Oh, Jesus, have mercy on us. Forgive us. Hosanna. Lord, save us. in jesus day that he started on that hillside quickly went from heart to heart and from that heart to another heart the scribes and the pharisees would say like you're ridiculous you're breaking sabbath laws you're breaking cleanliness laws you're breaking purity laws you're ridiculous jesus And all the while, right underneath their noses, Jesus is setting hearts free and changing lives. And in thousands of years of their hypocrisy and their religiousness, they weren't changing a single heart. They weren't setting a single captive free. They weren't delivering a single person from demonic oppression. They weren't healing the sick, casting out devils raising the dead. But Jesus did it almost by accident. I'm wondering this morning if there's anyone besides me who's sick and tired of the world that we live in and the and the presentation of Jesus Christ that has been given to the world and the watered downness of the church. And is there anyone besides me who just kind of like to unplug from kind of uh, Christianity that's anemic that's not powerful that doesn't change lives is there anyone besides me kind of like to unplug from that and say we want the real deal we want Jesus unplugged because this world needs Jesus actually unplugged untethered from all of that weight and all that all of that stuff and traditions, we, would, we need him unplugged and released in this world. As big as he is, as wonderful as he is, as glorious as he is. Is there anyone besides me in? That's the Jesus I fell in love with as a young man. That's the message I fell in love with as a young man. And that's the message that will change the world. Let Jesus be Jesus. And so, Father, here we are today, people who would love to continue the spiritual revolution that you began on the shores of the Galilee, the hillsides, the surrounding areas, and for Christ's sake we pray for pure hearts. so that we see God by the way as I close the seeing God part you'll see him face to face one day that's not what Jesus was talking about he was saying come on guys you follow me and you'll see God everywhere I go you'll see God every day You'll see him healing, setting the captive free, cleansing the leper, raising the dead. That's the God I want to see. How about you? So Lord, we bless you. Start here. Holy Spirit, lead us. All the angels of heaven, we implore you to minister to us, through us, with us, We leave here today. I asked that the church would unplug Jesus and release him, so that we might follow him. Amen. Amen. That's a good word, by by the way. Just unplug Jesus and let him be him. Let him do what he does. Amen. And here's the thing: is you can't put him in a bottle. The church can't. As much as we'd like to. It's like, let's put him in the bottle. Take him with us. He'll be inside of you. He'll lead you through this week. God bless you. Thank you so much.